0: Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Right. the Way back there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9 46 p.m.
1: with the men who saw and made that history.
0: Sandy into his wind up. Here's the pitch.
1: Many of whom are no longer with us. Swear
2: out and this the perfect game.
3: Stories from the 1930s. <laughs> to the 21st century.
2: This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch?
1: Welcome to Hardball, Episode 11. My name is Chris Domino, and this will be a look back at the New York Mets of 1969, or actually, more accurately, in how seven years they went from record-breaking lovable losers to pulling off the greatest miracle season in sports history. Thanks if you're just finding us. I hope you go back and listen to previous episodes after this. You will hopefully find hardball to be an audio friend, comfortable, and most importantly, the first hand accounts of players and their stories, the stories of games and moments and seasons and teammates, at its best, conversations that stir up memories from not only the guests themselves, but you, the listener. If you close your eyes, you're taken to places, some of them, by the way, you weren't even alive to really experience, that these men are speaking of. And most importantly, while it's easy to say that a discernible podcast listener might only listen or have the time to listen to an episode that coincides with certain players or teams. Our goal here is to make these universal to baseball fans. There's so many podcasts out there. We have our very own little piece of the world here. If you enjoy what you hear and believe in what is to come, please spread the word by sharing the link and perhaps even putting up a rating and review if you listen through Apple. Our guests, and there are two this week that's a little different, Ed Cranepool and Ron Swoboda. They'll both join us to talk how they got to the Mets. And boy, have I got a story or two for you as well. If you look at the previous 10 episodes, there were nine Hall of Famers and a game changer in Bo Jackson. Neither one of these men had anything close to those kinds of careers, but both are in the Mets Hall of Fame. And if you poo-poo that, you don't understand both the franchise's history and why to many the 1969 team is the greatest thing to happen in their fandom life. It's a Mets story for sure, but more importantly, it's an incredible baseball story, an underdog story. So let's start with this. You never forget your first love. Never more true than for a baseball fan and his first favorite player, or team that mattered to you the most when you discovered the game. For most of us, it was a family thing, a household thing. For many Met fans, the story is a little bit different. We'll get to that in a minute. My connection to this team, why I still know the name of every player who had even a minute on the roster in 1969. It's that first baseball memory that I have. And why having an opportunity to meet these men as an adult, and in some cases sitting down with them to try to explain what 1969 meant in our house, was both not lost in them, nor was it very original. I sat and watched a game with Ed Cranepool in City Field in September of 2012, and no less than a dozen people came up to chat him up, and all ended with a thank you. Ed Cranepool was never a star, but he was theirs, maybe more than any other Met. I sat with Tom Seaver here in Atlanta in the visiting Met dugout for over 30 minutes, no recorder, no video, and I think the reason he was engaged for as long as he was was because it wasn't an interview. I actually contained my inner Chris Farley, you know, that moment where you're apt to say, hey, do you remember when you won the World Series in 1969? We talked of how different things could have been if the commissioner had not ruled his contract signed with the Braves, nullified. If the Mets weren't the name pulled out of a hat that declared Seaver a member of the struggling franchise. And mostly we spoke of Gil Hodges, my dad's favorite player ever, and how he, according to Tom, was the most important man perhaps ever in any franchise's history in terms of setting a tone not accepting anything short of walking and acting and playing like a winner. Gil Hodges was bought for Bill Dennehy and $100,000 from the Washington Senators, and it's the greatest trade in Met history. What about the broadcast? How did it actually play out on TV and radio? Well, listen to this. NBC did the series with Kirk Gowdy sharing play-by-play with both Orioles announcer Bill O'Donnell and Met announcer Ralph Kiner. Tony Kubek recently retired from the game. He worked as a field reporter and in Stan's interviews. And one of those interviews, by the way, was Casey Stengel. Jim Simpson hosted the pregame coverage along with, get ready, Sandy Koufax and Mickey Mantle. Here's another piece of information. Games 3, 4, and 5 of the 69 series are believed to be the oldest surviving color television broadcast of a World Series game, even though the games have been broadcast in color since 1955. Games 1 and 2 only survive in black and white what they call kinescopes because it was preserved by the CBC, which aired the games in Canada using NBC feeds. It's a crazy time, 1969. Man on the Moon, Woodstock, Vietnam, and the Miracle Mets. So, this leads back to why this team mattered to so many others. When the Brooklyn Dodgers left after 1957 with the Giants, my dad and so many others had a void that could never be filled by the hated New York Yankees, or even by rooting for the Dodgers and Giants 3,000 miles away, it took Bill Shea, an attorney, threatening to start a competing league, the Continental League, anchored by a team in New York City, to force the hand of MLB to expand by four teams, to birth a National League team that would be embraced by all of the displaced fans in New York. We became a medhouse, 770 WABC, 1480 WHOMWOR on TV, Ralph Kiner, Bob Murphy, and Lindsey Nelson. A 1962 40 and 120 record, still a record in futility, an average of 108 losses over their first six seasons. And how after winning a franchise record 73 games in 1968, 73, it all turned around in 1969. And pst, if you want to know, they lost an opening day in 1969 to the expansion Montreal Expos 11-10. Not very encouraging. But boy, it got better. Even some would say miraculous. It's here. Steve Carlton's 19 strikeout game. That the Amazings won. Ron will handle that story. The Black Cat game versus the Cubs. Some famous Met fans at Chase Stadium that year. Man being an underdog to the Braves in baseball's first divisional series ever. The 109-win powerhouse Orioles team, loaded with Hall of Fame talent, who beat Seaver in Game 1. Oh yeah, he gave up a home run on the second pitch of that game, and it caused everybody around the country to say that was nice, but their ride is now over. Ron Swoboda's catch in Game 4, as good a defensive play as the game has ever seen, let alone in a game that could have turned a World Series. The shoe polish incident. Jerry Kuzman told me a few years ago, and he will be an eventual guest coming up on Hardball, that he was the guy that Gil Hodges told to scuff it up and with one scuffing motion helped the biggest comeback in the series. The Ed Sullivan Show, a Las Vegas nightclub act, it's all here. Unfortunately, so many of the men on this team aren't. Don Denon the in-season trade who becomes the series MVP. Tommy Agee, who single-handedly defends the Mets to a series win, gone at 58. Ed Charles, the poet and spiritual leader of this team, who you'll hear in a later episode of Hardball as well, passed in 2018 and lived through the Jackie Robinson history and lived long enough to tell me about it. Never throw a slider to the glider. Don Cardwell, Cal Koontz, Tug McGraw, as big a personality as the game has ever seen, and of course Gil Hodges, who passed on Easter Sunday of 1972 at spring training at the way too young age of 47. Bud Harrelson is in failing health, and I'm sure most of you know that Tom Seaver's family recently announced that Tom has officially pulled away from public life so we live with the memories of them all and of the team known as the Miracle Mets. So let's start with Ed Cranepool and follow up with Ron Swoboda here on Hardball.
0: Well, hi there, everybody. This
2: is Bob Murphy, welcoming you to the first regular season game in the history of the New York Mets. Well, we are about to be witnesses to history and the making right here in St. Louis as the New York Mets become a reality now you're back in new york
0: after an absence of 4 years i believe the new york mets are amazing 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 amazing
2: amazing amazing amazing
4: amazing amazing amazing, amazing. Meet the mets meet the mets
0: step right up and greet the mets
3: All of a sudden it wasn't really a cat it was a kitten maybe eight ten months old started walking down past the on-deck circle in front of our dugout and right behind ron santo and everybody thought that was a curse a black cat on the field walking in front of the cubs and at the time i think we only had a two and a half game lead on the mets and when we left shea stadium we were tied with the mets those
2: are pouring into the dugout. They're all over the field. It's a scene of wild jubilation here at Chase. Come on and meet the Mets. Meet the Mets. Step right up and greet the
0: Mets. Bring your kiddies, bring your wife. Guaranteed to have the time of your life because the
2: Mets are really soft the ball. You should see the scene on the field here at Chase Stadium. That's it. That's the infield. It is covered with Mets fans who swarmed out onto the field and they are screaming, we're number one. Well, indeed they are number one because the New York Mets have won the championship of the Eastern Division of the National League. The New York Mets completed an eight-year quest of a championship and that is the scene on the field here at Shea Stadium.
1: I appreciate your time this evening. We've got a lot of things we want to get through, if that's okay with you. Not a problem.
3: I'm sitting here relaxing in New York. We have beautiful weather for change, and uh, can't wait to talk.
1: Well, let's go down memory lane a little bit, and let's start out uh, 17 years old, I believe, coming out of a high school in the Bronx, James Monroe High School.
3: Well, it was just about this time, around the 20th of June, I signed when I was 17, and I was in California about this time, and uh, my opening night, uh, Sandy Koufax, struck out 18 and pitched a no-hitter against the Mets, and I wanted to go back to college.
1: Welcome to the world of the New York Mets in 1962.
3: Yeah, I'll tell you what, it was a tough career.
1: (laughs) We're going to talk about as I said, a lot, but i got to ask. Coming out of high school, you are a bonafide bonus baby by the New York Mets, but you grew up in the Bronx, correct? Yes, I did. National League Baseball leaves with the Giants and the Dodgers. While you're really in your sort of formative years as a baseball fan, can I ask what team did you actually root for? Was it as simple as being a Yankees fan?
3: Oh, no question about it. Being brought up in the Bronx, you had to be a Yankee fan, and I certainly was. I mean, I followed the Yankees and Nicki Mandel. They were my idols uh, growing up and uh, went to the ball games. I never saw a game in Ebbets Field, and I only saw a couple of games in the polo grounds uh, when the Giants were playing the Dodgers. Uh, My mother was a Giant fan, but uh, everybody else in my family were Yankee fans.
1: Now, Ed, I mentioned a number earlier today, and tell me, again, not that I'm looking to pry, but was the $85,000 signing bonus accurate?
3: Uh, I think I wound up with about eighty-seven fifty or something like that back in those days. You know, and and uh, we, it was a lot of money back in the early years. Obviously, for a boy in the Bronx, seventeen-year-olds get that kind of money. Uh, bought my first house from my mother, and uh, we moved from the Bronx, a little little apartment uh, up to Westchester, and we thought we were in cotton.
1: <laughs> uh- usually when that stuff is going on, when you get to those types of numbers, there had to be at least another party or two who were involved. Were the New York Yankees ever interested in Ed Cranepool? You know, well, the crane pool? I
3: worked out for the Yankees, and a lot of clubs I worked out for, they came to see me play, and uh, you know, I wanted to be a Yankee, but obviously when you look at the economics of the sport, even back in those days, Yankees had a great team. They had a number of players. Uh, minor League Baseball was very difficult to move up, so I felt there was an opportunity to play in the National League, and and the Mets made me a great offer, and, and uh, they, you know, wore my home also, New York, to mm-hmm. New York. But I was an American League fan, and, uh, you know, if, if anything growing up, I would have loved to have played in Yankee Stadium.
1: What about the idea, how good a high school player were you that the bidding actually got to where it was?
3: Well, I was, I was probably the premier player in New York, and you hate to be bragging about that. But uh, scouts followed me from the time I left Little League into Sandlot Baseball because, fortunately for myself, I excelled in every level. And then, uh, you know, I was able to sign with whoever I wanted to. There was no draft back in those days. It was only after I signed about two years later the uh, Owners instituted as a draft trying to save the bonus money that they were playing the young kids. They felt, you know, they didn't want to pay the kids coming out of school, so they put up a draft. And what that did was limited your choice, obviously, of who you could sign with. So you had one guy bidding as opposed to a number of ball clubs. But I think, you know, everyone knew I wanted to stay in New York, and everyone, you know, felt the Mets had a great opportunity with me because the scouts followed me for three years in high school or at every ball game. We had more scouts at my high school games, really, than I did, uh,
1: you know, kids from school. Mm -hmm. Speaking of Ed Cranepool tonight on uh, Budweiser's Hardball, talking about his signing, and we're going to get to a whole lot of other things. But, Ed, you mentioned also the ability to play. I'm assuming that comes into play when you're talking about an expansion team The Yankees, it's going to be a tough road, a hoe, trying to move up, as you said, not only through the minor leagues, but eventually to break into the majors. How much of a consideration was that, the idea that this team is is literally starting from scratch?
3: Well, I knew I wanted to get to the major leagues in a hurry, and that's one of the reasons, and obviously the only reason I signed with the Mets. You knew you had the opportunity there. They didn't have a farm system. You had nobody to beat out. When they drafted the players uh, to play for the Mets, they drafted all the players at the twilight of their career. So you know they weren't going to be there forever. Uh, where the Yankees had a farm system, very productive, still winning championships. They had Bill Scourin and, and of course Joe uh, Peppertone was coming into the fold and had a great season. And of course they have, they were known to have uh, minor leagues filled, and and players players could be you know dra- stranded down there. I signed with a team that I uh, wanted an opportunity. I got to the major leagues, like I said, when I was 17. Little did I realize, or little did I, I expect, the difference mentally and physically mm-hmm. from a player coming from school to the major leagues was a tremendous difference. And if anything, it probably uh, retarded my my career, slowed my career down, and probably prevented me from being the player I should have been based upon what I thought I was doing. You know, growing up, I should have been a better player, but I think obviously playing against the the premier players in baseball, and from the 60s to the 70s, more guys went into the Hall of Fame. They were comparing against superstars, mm-hmm. and physically I was not
1: mentally ready to play. Ed Crampool joining us tonight on Budweiser's Hardball. Now, Ed, being a Yankee fan, when you find out that Casey Stengel is going to be the manager of the match, do you remember what your reaction was?
3: Oh, that was exciting. Casey was a, uh, you know, a treasure in baseball, and I'll tell you what, I really loved playing for him. I was with him for three years. You know, and obviously he was not the Casey Stangle that everybody knew and loved uh, from the standpoint that when the red light came on and he was talking to the press, obviously he was having a lot of fun entertaining the world. Uh, Behind closed doors, you knew exactly what he was saying. He was a player's manager. He wanted you to go on the field, give your best effort. And if you did that, he tried to reward you. And and I enjoyed playing for Casey because he always put me alongside of him, made sure he would be talking baseball morning, noon, and night, a bundle of energy, first guy to the ballpark, the last guy to leave, and a tremendous wealth of knowledge. And of course, he wanted to partake and give some of that to the young players. Unfortunately for the Mets, we didn't have a lot of young players in '62, '63. It took us a few years to, uh, you know, to start generating players by signing them, drafting them, et cetera. We got lucky with a couple of guys. They got to the major leagues, and then Casey had a field day. Unfortunately, uh, he had an injury, and his career was shortened. and they shortened, but at uh, yeah. seventy five I believe he he fractured his wrist and he retired uh, in uh, 1965, you know and and then we got him you know we
1: missed him hey, Ed, what about the idea you just mentioned? Uh, we were talking earlier it was actually yesterday uh, on the main show that I do here on the station about the lovable losers tag now there is something mystical about a team that 's forty and one twenty, and by the way it 's appropriate that there are two games somehow missing. I know it was one hundred and sixty two game schedule. But you guys only played 160 that year. Um, The idea, though, that you had guys in that team, this idea that Gil Hodges and Clem LeBine, guys who had won, Richie Ashburn, it had to tear some of those veterans up. And I don't know, as a 17-year-old, could you notice what it was like, you know, as people were laughing at this team, that these guys had to live with that?
3: Well, there's no question about it. I don't think the players appreciated the, the ridicule that was going on. They always went on the field with a positive attitude and wanted to win obviously they didn't have the uh, ability anymore. You know, obviously their physical attributes were, were diminishing and they, they couldn't perform up to the standards. And, you know, we drafted marquee name players for New York that were a shell of themselves. Guys like Richie Ashburn couldn't take it very well. He hit three hundred for the Mets in sixty two and then retired. He just didn't like losing. And nobody likes losing. Losing is contagious, so is winning and I'll tell you what, it becomes a defeated attitude with everybody. And even myself, I wasn't caught up with it in 62 or 63 because, you know, as a young player, you want to perform and you want to play every day. Little do you realize that it starts eating away at you because mm-hmm. nothing you do is enough. You get a lot of negative publicity because everything is negative based upon winning and losing. And, of course, after a few years, it, it kind of, uh, you know, dwells on you and uh, ingrates in your system that, you know, this isn't fun. Winning in professional baseball is the only way to have fun, going to the ballpark. There's a reason to go out to the stadium the second half of the season. With the New York Mets, your season was eliminated at the
1: All-Star break. Well, you know, you mentioned the All-Star break. I'll give you one of those facts that I'm sure you know, but a lot of people might find it possible. Uh, nine games into the year in 1962, you guys are nine-and-a-half games out of first place, which you would think would be impossible, but you start 0-9 and the Pirates were 10-0. You're nine and You're nine-and-a-half games out, nine games into your season.
3: It's, it's amazing, and I'll tell you what, it got tougher. Every year we started the same way. It got very difficult until the times we started, you know, accumulating players. And like I said, we got very lucky in the draft. We acquired the marquee player for the Mets, our franchise player, Tom Seaver. Mm-hmm. And that was just a fluke. I think... Uh, you know, Atlanta, unfortunately, did something, uh, you know, not correct with the
1: rules. Yeah, the contract coming out of USC, and I guess they put three names in a hat, and lo and behold, the first lucky thing that ever happens to the Mets franchise is the Mets get to right. sign that was, Tom Seaver. That Sieber. was
3: the first good move we, we had, and, of course, we then drafted Tom Seaver. Because after that, after, maybe that was the only time we did anything right. After that, we made some horrible draft choices.
1: No Reggie Jackson.
3: Well, Reggie Jackson, we took a catcher by the name of Steve Chilcott, who he was the best catcher in baseball in the minor leagues or in college or whatever, we drafted this young fellow. I don't think he ever got to the major leagues. Ed,
1: let me give you a fact about him. He is the only number one overall pick who never spent a day in the major leagues ever in the uh, history you know, of the draft.
3: It was amazing, and Reggie Jackson was the number two pick we could have had him, and that would have changed the franchise around.
1: Now, let me ask you a couple of things, Ed. You talked about being a hometown guy, and you did get a hit. In 1962, you you were actually officially in the books. You didn't play a lot, and was there? You said you weren't caught up in it as much as maybe some of the veteran guys. But was there a lot of undue pressure on you, whether it was self imposed or from people on the outside saying, "Hey, we paid a lot of money for this guy. When the hell are we going to get to see him?"
3: Well, there was no question about it, and uh, there was pressure on myself. Not in '62 so much because the ball club in Casey was trying to. uh, bring me along very slowly. In 1963, going to spring training, George Weiss wanted to send me out to the minor leagues. That was his intention. He wanted to invite me to spring training, send me to AAA, play in AAA, and, and of course, at that point, develop and come up. What I did in spring training of 63 was let the ball club in base hits in spring training. Got the most hits on the team. I think I hit about 340 that spring, and Casey said to George, How can I send him out? He's my best hitter. Mm -hmm. So I went to New York and and wound up playing out of position. I played the outfield as opposed to first base. We had some older first basemen that couldn't move to the outfield. I went went to right field. I started the season, I think, as the number three hitter in right field and was doing fairly well, and then I had an injury. Uh, I broke up a double play uh, in the polo grounds and uh, hurt my wrist, and I never really recovered.
1: Ed Crane tonight on Budweiser's Hardball, speaking to him about his career and his time around some of the most famous names in baseball history. Ed, one thing about the polo grounds. Somebody emailed me today and wanted to know, you guys almost drew a million people that first year and you obviously weren't winning very much. What was the experience like in polo grounds? Because I know it was a really a rundown place at that point. Well, but
3: it was it was it was a charm ballpark. Mm-hmm. You know, the Giants were there and Willie Mays and everybody remembers his great catch in the fifty four World Series. But of course, uh, the state the clubhouse was in dead center field. So the fans had to come out of the clubhouse and walk right through the center of the field. Uh, You know, and the fans were on both sides, left and right. And a a pitcher, if he got knocked out, Mm -hmm. had to walk back out there in between the bleachers. So they used to let him, you know, give him a little razzin. But the fans were very loyal. We had the greatest sports fans in the world.
1: And New York baseball, I mean, National League Baseball back in New York. You knew you had a built-in audience.
3: We had the audience. We had the giant Dodger fans. Both teams left in, in, you know, in the late 50s. So they were starving for baseball. They came out rooted for the Mets and had a good time well they had a good time the (laughs) players themselves didn't have a great time because like I said when you win only 40 games you got a lot of negative
1: publicity and a lot of losing And, and tabloid newspapers had really come into play probably around the Maris and Mantle were they feuding were they not in 61 you know, I think the tabloids in New York really became the tabloids back then when they were willing to rip you a little bit more than I ever would have in the past.
3: Oh, there's no question about it. And of course, you know, no matter what you did, if you got three hits and the ball club loses, they just write about how they lost the ball game. Hey, Ed, is
1: this true? Was there a New York newspaper headline? I guess when you were 19, is Ed Cranepool over the hill? Was that literally something that was, oh, written yeah, in, that the was in the newspaper?
3: That was in the papers. I, somebody held a sign up. You know, they, you, you know, a lot of people thought they were having fun, and that was part of the excitement. It, uh, you know, in the ball grounds at Shea Stadium, they bring signs out there. We had banner days, took two hours mm-hmm. in between ball games. <laughs> they did a lot of things to entertain the fans, and they had a great time. And of course, one of those signs was that. And you know what? You know, by the time I was 20, I was in the All-Star game. But but still, they wanted more. Yeah. I couldn't lead a ball club out of the darkness. One player was not strong enough to lead a team out. The greatest players that you saw around. Henry Aaron was a great player in Milwaukee. He went down to Atlanta. With, Henry could himself could not lead the Atlanta Braves to a championship. He had to surround himself with good players. We had we didn't have very many players in the early '60s. We started developing around '67, '68. You know, we we developed a lot of players, and then we came on very quickly. But for six years, five or six years, I was exposed. A great hitter, if he doesn't have someone behind him. They're going to walk them all the time. I was not mature enough or, or, or smart enough as a hitter and patient enough to take a lot of pitchers. My, my biggest thing that I had going against me is my eyes were too good. Every time I swung the bat, I hit the ball. Now, if a pitcher made a pitch off the plate, I was not a Barry Bonds who would take that ball. I would swing at it and hit a ground ball a short a mm-hmm. second. If I was a more disciplined hitter, and that comes with experience, you take the pitch. Maybe the pitcher makes a mistake. Otherwise, maybe I would have had 150 walks like Barry. You know what I'm saying? Yep. If there's no reason to pitch to you if there's nobody behind you.
1: Well, Ed Cranepool, let's do this. Let's finish up talking about kind of the lean couple of years before we get to the good news in a second. You need to tell me if this stuff is fact or fiction as best you can recall, okay? You got it. In 1962, you, the Mets are going to have an old-timer's day. But you really don't have any players now. Did you guys really do an exhibition game between the '51 Giants and the '51 Dodgers instead of a classic old-timers game?
3: You know, I don't. I don't remember. Because okay. if They had the. If they had an old-timers game, it would have been, you know, somewhere around June or July. July. And, and, uh, you know, I just joined the ball club and then I got sent out for a couple of weeks. I don't really know.
1: Yeah, there there was a story that (laughs) since you didn't have any old timers, they actually had a two-inning exhibition game between the 51 Giants and the 51 Dodgers. We could have done
3: that because we had them all on our team. You're
1: right. You just trot them out and put them in a different uniform, right. right? We
3: were loaded with Giants and Dodgers. Is
1: this true? Did Joe Pignettano really hit into a triple play to end that 1962 season?
3: Yes, he did. It was a little flatter to right field than he did. And I'll tell you what, it was. Joe didn't play very often, and when he did, I guess he made the record books with it, but he did end the season.
1: Oh, that's about as fitting as it gets, isn't
3: it? You're not kidding. He still talks about it. I was with him this afternoon. We had a great time. One thing we had was we had a lot of friendships over the years. I met a lot of great players, played against a lot of Hall of Famers. A lot of them passed through the gates at Shea Stadium and the Polo grounds, and I'll tell you what. Fond memories, including Casey and all the guys.
1: Well, we'll talk about Gil Hodges and your relationship with him in the '69 season, but I have to ask one more. You tell me if this is true. You mentioned Richie Ashburn. He does hit three oh six. He gets, as the most valuable player of the team, is this true he gets a powerboat?
3: He got a car that was one of these cars that you could use as a car or a boat. <laughs> and you, It was one of those conversions that you uh-huh. see. It was kind of a, an amphibious machine. I, think, I, I don't think he ever took... Uh, possession of. It. I think he probably sold it or something. Well, here's the, the
1: story out. that I have. He was from Nebraska, so what the hell good would that do for him?
3: That's correct. He said he had, didn't have any water out there. Yeah. He, he never took it out. He made a trade. I think he might have gave it to moth thrown uh,
1: Well, the, the story is that it sunk, and why no, not? It,
3: it, it could have <laughs> sunk in one of the puddles in <laughs> New York or one of the potholes.
1: Um, <laughs> let's do this. Let's talk about better times. Gil Hodges is a teammate in 62, and he becomes the manager of the Mets, and I've had a chance to speak to Art Shamsky, Ron Svoboda, Cleon Jones, uh, Seaver, a bunch of those guys. I spoke to Joan Hodges last year. Gil Hodges was a no-nonsense guy. When he comes back as a manager after being with the Senators, could you sense that this team was going to be infused with a completely different attitude or else Gil Hodges was going to lose his mind?
3: Well, there was no question about it. When Gil took over in 1968, um, we knew there was going to be a change. He, he certainly wouldn't have stood for uh, any nonsense. He was a, uh, a win, uh, win manager. Uh, he believed in uh, pitching and defense and playing the game fundamentally sound. And from spring training at 68, um, you know, he tried to instill uh, that thought process into the club, and he had to reinvent the whole team. And I'll tell you what, it was difficult because a lot of us had some bad habits. Mm-hmm. But Gil uh, had one set of rules for 25 players, a very strong disciplinarian, very stern. He treated everybody fair and everybody the same. At least you knew you, where you stood with Gill, uh, and he had one set of rules. So you know what? He didn't... You know, differ from any player. He wow. didn't care who it was. I was there with, with plenty of tenure, but he treated me the same as the first guy that uh, stepped on the field that year. And you know, He became a great manager for us because he took us from a shell of a ball club, and we had a lot of young players back in 68, and we made a big trade with uh, the Chicago White Sox and acquired quiet Tommy, Tommy H. That was one of the first things that he wanted yep. was a center field that I could catch the ball. And because he needed a catcher that can catch the ball, that was our weakness. And, of course, you know, Gil wanted to mold the team, and he did.
1: Well, Jerry Grody was one of the unsung defensive catchers, certainly, of his area. He wasn't going to hit much, but a lot of people around baseball will tell you, Jerry Grody, you know, Johnny Bench might have been the premier guy, but second to Johnny Bench in the National League, no doubt about it, was Jerry Grody behind the well, plate. Well, I
3: don't think there was ever a better catcher than Jerry Grody. Johnny Bench was a great player. He was a Hall of Famer, no question about it, because he had all the tools. I mean, and offensively, he was a great offensive threat. Jerry Grody, you know, w- was not a great hitter, became a good hitter, but defensively, nobody blocked the ball better than Jerry Grody. Nobody was quicker out of out of the crouch and throwing the ball to second base. Nobody would steal on Jerry Grody. And, of course, the pitchers, he threw the ball so hard back to the pitchers, with <laughs> their hands half the time he was throwing harder than all pitchers. T- tough Texas but, mindset. Oh, he was very tough, yeah. difficult man. But a great defensive catcher, and he really molded the pitching staff. And of course, Gill and his uh, right-hand man, Rube Walker, really molded the pitching.
1: And Joe Pignatown a part of that as well. All right, Ed, let's do a couple of things real quick. Ed Cranepool tonight on Budweiser's Hardball on 7-9 of the zone. I know this must have been a little disappointing for you. 1969, the Mets make a deal. It certainly ends up helping them getting Don Clendenon. But i got to imagine when you're a guy playing first base and you're a first baseman for the Mets and you see this thing might be ready to turn, do you remember when you were told that Clendenon was coming over and how did Gil handle that situation?
3: Well, Gil didn't tell anybody when he was making a trade. He made the trade, whether mm-hmm. he liked it or not, he was going to do it. But one thing Gil did was he believed in platooning in every position. He didn't change when Don Clinton then came over. We platooned the whole season. He put me against right-handers. He had Don against left-handers. It worked at every position we had. I think the only only player we did not platoon in, uh, actually it was two, was um, Tommy Agee in center field and Cleon Jones, for the most part,
1: in, yeah. uh, in left field. And a Gil Hodges' story, you know, we had a chance to, to know this one firsthand. He pulls Cleon Jones out of a game in 1969, and a lot of people say that was a turning point. You mentioned one set of rules for every guy. Cleon Jones was one of the best hitters in the National League that well, he, year.
3: He was actually leading the league in hitting, and, and uh, there was a situation in the ballgame, and, and Cleon didn't hustle down the line after a, uh, a double. And he walked all the way to left field. We thought he was going to get the pitcher and change the pitcher, but he just kept walking in the left field and asked Cleon if he was okay. And Cleon said he was okay or he was hurt or whatever, and he just took him out of the game. And and actually this was the turning point because we instilled or installed uh, Ron Sabota in the outfield Mm for the next, oh, I'd say three weeks. And Ronnie got very hot down the stretch. So this was typical of the way Gill's moves went. Sabota fills in for Cleon. Cleon you know, it was leading the league and hitting. He finally gets in with about two weeks to go, but Sabota was, was our best hitter in the last six weeks of the season, and he did a
1: great job for us. And a lot of people don't realize that those two things go hand in hand. Now, Ed, when you guys win the World Series, I know New York goes crazy. It's a heck of a year in 1969. It's the Jets, it's the Knicks, and the Mets. But the Mets are kind of the story in the sense that seven years after being the worst team in baseball, literally, figuratively, in every way possible, you guys are the world champs, and there are a lot of things that come from that. Uh, things like the Ed Sullivan Show, things like the ticker tape parade, things like... The idea that New York was going to celebrate a National League team winning a World Series.
3: Not only that, how about well, going, to, going to Las Vegas and starring at Caesars Palace? Remember, we spent a month out in Las Vegas. We loved it out there.
1: And you guys actually did. You sang on the Ed Sullivan Show when you guys brought a show out to Las Vegas.
3: That's correct. We were out there. We were the second leading draw to Buddy Hackett back in 1969. We were out there. They wanted us to stay longer. But <laughs> fortunately for ourselves, we, we smartened up in a hurry. We figured we were not entertainers.
1: Uh, A couple of things, Pearl Bailey and a few other entertainers kind of made their way to the Mets, I don't want to call it bandwagon, but you also had the sign man at those games, and you had the Tug McGraw um, you know we that
3: had, we had the mayor, also Mayor Lindsay. You're he right. In there. He got reelected because of us, or got elected because of us. He was at every game. We didn't see him the first half of the year, <laughs> and coming down the stretch, he was there. His face was in every picture, and he wound up winning the election. Do
1: you remember any other celebrities? I know Pearl Bailey was there quite a bit.
3: Jerry Vale was there all the time. We had great fans in New York. They came out all the time, and and, and during the playoffs and World Series, Pearl Bailey was there too. The good times and the mm-hmm. bad times. She loved baseball. And we had a lot of guys that uh, loved the game, and uh, we we had a lot of fans when we went to Los Angeles. A lot of ex-New Yorkers, you sure. Milton Berle used to come out to the ballpark. All these great guys, we got Art Garfunkel Saint Paul Simon. You know, Simon and Garfunkel. We used to have lunch with these guys, and it was it was a lot of fun because New York was the happening place, and a lot of New Yorkers are out in L.A. Also now.
1: And let's finish up with this. Are you still in the record books as having the best? Uh... Career average for a pinch hitter in a season?
3: Yes, I do. I was 17 for 35 one year, and and one thing I did, I led the league in, in pinch hitting five years in a row, and I had uh, had a great eye. And I'll tell you what, I became a good pinch hitter just just to try to out outdo my managers who wasn't playing me. When I wasn't playing, I was annoyed that I was being platooned at mm-hmm. times. So I figured every time I'd go up, try to get a base hit. And I think for five years in a row. I hit over 400 as a pinch hitter, so I had a pretty good eye with doing
1: so. Well, I mentioned today that you were a fan favorite, too. I think that a lot of times, you know, in all sports, if a guy doesn't play a lot but he does his job well, the Eddie Chance actually were part of what happened at Chase Stadium for you.
3: Oh, they loved it. I'll tell you what, and I loved it, too. I loved the pinch hit because as soon as I stepped out of the dugout, the fans went crazy. I knew when I was going to pinch hit, the game was on the line, mm-hmm. and it was difficult with a bad ball club back in, the, in my, my later years because I only pinch hit whether it was a one-run game or it was a winning situation.
1: weren't a lot of those.
3: It wasn't a lot of them at the end in the late 70s again. I was on the roller coaster. I was up, I was down, I was up, I was down. And then at that point it gets very difficult because I would never pinch hit, wouldn't even think about pinch hitting if the Mets were four or five runs Mm -hmm. down. None of the managers would ever pinch hit me. I used to always have to face the top reliever in a game-winning situation, and that's when I prepared myself mentally.
1: Ed, let's do this. Tell everybody what it is you're doing today, because this is how I actually uh, came in contact with you.
3: Well, I just uh, started a new company, and and it's called the Memorabilia Roadshow. And uh, it's a spinoff, because memorabilia in today's market is a tremendous market. The fans have loved it for years, but unfortunately it's gotten some negative publicity uh, the last couple of years of different reports, whether it be from the FBI or different people having problems with so-called merchandise that they don't feel is authentic got together one night. We were talking and discussing it, and I said, you know, it's such a big business. Let's create a player site where the players themselves can put their own memorabilia up, something that has, has a, a story behind it mm-hmm. based upon each player. And if a fan wants to get that memorabilia, we get the players to put it up, On and it comes with a letter from the player and a little story behind it and you're buying a piece of the player
1: well memorabilia that's where people can see some of the things that are up right now
3: well no the uh, the uh, on net where memorabiliarocho.net.net. I apologize uh, that is the name of our, our website and it's, and it's up and running we're going to be having a uh, tremendous auction in September we've had more calls from players we're gonna it's very exciting uh, Diana Munson uh, Mm-hmm. Was a friend of mine. She's finally decided to put some stuff up for memorabilia for, for the Yankee fans. We also have Randy Maris, who's uh, <clears throat> one of the executives of the Maris Estate. He's on my board. He's putting some stuff up. The Komeni family. We've got many, many people that uh, are calling us all the time that are going to put some merchandise up. It's going to be fan friendly, it's going to be exciting. You can view some of the stuff on the website now. And then uh, in September, uh, after the bidding starts on the web, we're going to take it live. We're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to have hundreds of people there. We have a lot of Yankees on my board. I have about 25 players on my board of directors, going out there soliciting the players, and we're doing a great job. We're having response from Hall of Famers players, marquee players, so now you can buy a piece of the player.
1: All right, Ed. Well, listen, I, I really appreciate the time. As I told you, the Mets was the house. I grew up, my dad was a Brooklyn Dodger fan, grew up in a Met house because National League Baseball came back to New York City. I remember taking off and watching on WOR with Lindsay and uh, Bob Murphy and Ralph Kiner, and, and it really is nice to have a chance to catch up with you guys. You're a guy who did your job well uh, it sounds to me like you certainly have reconciled the idea yeah, that, yeah. hey, maybe it could have been better. But I also agree with you. Asking <coughs> a 17-year-old in New York City to do big things, Ron Svoboda said the same thing. He thought his development might have been retarded because of a rush-up situation. You know, good for you for this many years later still being around the game. Oh, I love it. i they we still having fun. Well, Ed, thanks very much for your time tonight. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Let's speak to Mr. Ron Swoboda tonight at the Pard Balls Living Air Classics Legends of the Game. Ron, how are you doing this evening? Good, Chris. How are you, man? Well, very good. I appreciate you spending a few minutes with us tonight. No problem. My pleasure. We'll, we'll get to the 69 Mets and everything that surrounds it, but the story usually starts, well, a good amount before that. Even though you're 20 when you come up to the Mets in 1965, I got to ask, where were you we actually born? Where did you grow up? And how did the New York Mets end up being the team that eventually got your services?
4: Kind of interesting. I played for a bird dog scout who worked for the Mets. As, a, as an amateur there and uh, when it uh, when it came time in the city of Baltimore uh, my mom and dad still live in the city of Baltimore, my mom is a big O's fan and uh, you know, we had talked to a couple of teams, I was going to the University of Maryland, my intention was to go back but the Mets walked in and said we're going to make you this offer and uh, if you like it, go if you don't, go back to college and um, you know, they uh, It wasn't a whole lot of money, but uh, when your mom and dad are making about $13,000 between them back in 1963, uh, $35,000 seemed like a lot of money, and I jumped at it, uh, thinking that this franchise, this expansion franchise, would be a a quicker route to the big leagues.
1: Well, and that was part of the process. Let me ask you something, Ron. Uh, obviously, being an Orioles fan, your family being an Orioles fan, 1969 will play even more significance than I even knew. Oh, yeah. But i got to ask, when you think about that, the idea of, hey, look, my route to the major leagues might be quicker. I don't know if you were aware of what the Mets had done in 62. You know, I don't know if as a high school kid you much How care about. 120
4: about with the- losses?
1: Are you aware of that as a 16- or 17-year-old in Maryland, though?
4: Well, no, because uh, they did it in 1962. Um, I didn't really pay much attention to the Mets then. We just knew they were, you know, uh, abysmal as a, as a franchise because expansion back then was pretty brutal, uh, you know, pretty restricting on the uh, expansioneers, you know, and uh, they were they were locked in that. In fact, I'm I'm pretty much rooting against Detroit right now uh, to uh, lose 100, although they're on a pretty good pace to do it. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't want Detroit to break that record. I, I, I think that 120 losses by the 62 Mets is, uh, is something that should stand a lot longer.
1: Well, I don't know how players from that team would feel, but one of the other things about the first few years of the Mets organization is they decided to go with a whole bunch of veterans, and some of them certainly with names, the Duke Snyders of the world. As a matter of fact, I think at 65, when you were brought up, aren't you a teammate for a short time of both Warren Spahn and Yogi Berra in that 65 season?
4: Actually, I was. Um, Yogi Berra actually got a couple of at-bats. They tried to bring him back, and, you know... uh, you know, he decided that he didn't want to do that. All he could do was uh, take away from his legend. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so he called that one off and went back to the first base coaching box. Uh, Warren Spahn pitched for us for a while, and that was a treat because, you know, I had uh, uh, eventually I would play against him uh, in the National League when he was pitching with the Giants. So it was, it was kind of a kick uh, to be around. I played with Kenny Boyer. I mean, you know, I played with a lot of great Tommy Davis, a lot of pretty great players, you know, who were a little off their greatness uh, by the time the Mets got them.
1: And you also played under Casey Stengel that year, did you not?
4: Well, Casey Stengel was the manager in 1965, and and he was an amazing guy. I mean, amazing is a word, obviously, that floats around the Mets Mm -hmm. franchise. Um, Stengel more or less invented it um, and and, and propagated it. But the only thing I feel badly about Casey was alive to see the 1969 team win the world series. And for that, I'll be forever grateful. But I think the fact that he signed on to that proposition back in 1961 or so or 1962, after the Yankees had let him go, um, uh, it, it eroded a little the legend of a truly great baseball guy, a, a, a living legend in baseball. Uh, Stengel, I, I think it cost him, in terms of the way people today look at him as some sort of clown, some sort of fop.
1: Well, Ron, I think I've had that conversation with a few people, the idea of, hey, the you know, the idea that the lovable losers and the Casey Stengel speak, I think you're right. I think it takes away a little bit of the greatness that he actually attained as well, a manager. Well, he knew what he was doing. Yeah,
4: you know he was he was he became the foil. He became the uh, you know the guy that entertained the media and kept them from turning on the team on the franchise. Making he understood sure that what he had, and you know he had a bunch of has-beens and never will be's for the most part, and they weren't going to win.
1: And the idea of lovable loser, you do need a guy who can carry the banner <laughs> for that, because you know in New York, as much as everybody wanted to root for that team, it could have gotten much more vicious than it did. And I agree with you, Casey Stengel and Duke Snyder and Bill. Uh, Gil Hodges being there, I think that helped make sure that the franchise wouldn't be under that bus season one. Well, let me ask you, who,
4: who in the history of baseball has ever been able to be labeled lovable losers? I mean, who else?
1: Yeah. I, mean, the I can't and- think of anybody
4: else. The thing is, is New York had two National League teams, the Giants and the Dodgers. And when they left back in the late 50s, the city was out of National League Baseball. New York was a National League town, um, and and uh, they lost both franchises. When the One Mets run. came back, they came back as an amalgam of those two mm-hmm. teams. You mentioned Duke Snyder. Uh, there were a lot of former – and Gil Hodges who played on that team. There were a lot of Roger Craig. There mm-hmm. were a lot of former Dodgers and former Mets – I mean former Dodgers and former Giants as part of that uh, early mix in 62 and 63.
1: And one of the other things that comes about, and we're talking to Ron Spamoda tonight, and we'll talk about the '69 season as a whole in a second, but one other thing. Uh, my dad grew up, born and bred a Brooklyn Dodger fan. I'm sure the Giants fans felt the same way. Even when the Yankees were the only game in town, well, that was blasphemous. You couldn't root for the Yankees. They were just waiting, waiting for a New York team to come in. And then the Mets do what I think what was brilliant. You take the colors of both the Dodgers and the Giants, and you incorporate it into the Mets uniform to have that banding of, hey, I don't even think they exist in california let's start anew with a brand new baby
4: yeah i think that was um, that was brilliant you know it it eventually had to happen okay national league baseball it, it had to come back to new york i think the way they brought it back um i i think you know you, you know grabbing a little from from the dodgers and from the from the giants and you know, kept that tradition alive. That's what people related to. And, you know, in New York, you, you're not just a baseball fan in New York. You're a Yankee fan. You're a Mets fan and, 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 in today's world. Uh, mm-hmm. There's no, well, I like baseball, and I'll go to Yankee Stadium, and I'll go to... You know, it's none of that. You're, you have to declare. And back when there were three teams there, it was even more vicious.
1: Ron, let's talk about 1965. You're a 20-year-old coming out of spring training. Did you know you were going to make the team that year? Did you know you would travel up with the big club?
4: Well, here's the deal. Um, There were four guys, four rookies back in 1965. Uh, There was a first year rule in baseball at the time, and we were really all, uh, you can call us either beneficiaries or victims of a first year rule in baseball. If you had played one year of organized baseball, the the only way they could protect, there were two ways they could protect you from being drafted by another team after your first year in professional baseball, and that was to call you the designated player and allow them to send you out to the minor leagues, or they had to keep you on the big league roster. And they had lost Paul Blair, who was a pretty good center fielder, and the Mets had the year before, to the Orioles because they had not protected him. And I think as a sort of overreaction to that, and, and you know, folks that know a little something about baseball know that Paul Blair was a pretty good outfielder. He was on that Baltimore Oriole team in 1969, and he played with the Yankees in a couple of World Series. Uh, he was a great center fielder and, and a great player. Um, the Mets had lost him out of their organization, so they reacted by keeping four guys, four rookies, on that 1965 team. Uh, Tug McGraw, uh, left-hander, of course, everybody knows Tug. You gotta believe from the uh, 1973 team, and the Phillies in a couple of World Series uh, after that. Um, and and uh, two guys you probably never heard of: Jim Bethke, a right-handed pitcher, and uh, uh, Danny Napoleon, an outfielder, right-handed hitting outfielder, and myself.
1: And Ron, you come up. You actually have pretty good success early on. You, uh, I think, 19 home runs your rookie year. Yeah. Did you th- now, you mentioned it. You said it, blessing or curse. Were you ready to be a major league player in 1965?
4: No, and, and, and I, ne- I hit 15 home runs the first half and, and, and um, four the second half. I think they figured me out, and I hadn't figured out myself yet. And and I played catch-up uh, from that point on. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a lot of natural ability. Uh, I, I, I think I needed to learn more about baseball, more about how to hit more about an approach to hitting. Um, I didn't have any of that going. I just had good natural ability, played on great team in Baltimore coming out as an amateur, um, played a lot of baseball in the summer as a kid, so I was ready to come play. And uh, had a pretty good year, my first year in, uh, primarily in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, in double-A ball. Um, so, so I was ready to play a little bit, but, you know, too much happened too fast, and, and, and really I, I played catch-up the rest of my nine-year career.
1: Well, let's talk about a few things. 1968, the Mets finishing last again, and everybody thinks, well, okay, here we go. 1969, it's going to be divisional baseball for the first time in baseball's history. The Mets are not going to be a factor. Gil Hodges had been there for a little while now, and I know I've spoken to Joan Hodges. I've spoken to people from that team as well. If one thing maybe set success in motion, certainly the Tug McGraws, the Tom Severs, the Jerry Kuzmans, uh, the guys, the, the Donklin, Denon trade, Tommy Agee coming to his own. There were certain things, but I think to a man, everybody's told me, without Gil Hodges being at the helm, this doesn't happen in 1969.
4: Yeah, Gil was pretty stabilizing force for a team that was pretty young, okay? And uh, interestingly enough, it was the Braves that we played in the 1969 mm-hmm. playoffs, the first ever National League playoffs. And i got to believe the Braves were pretty happy to see us uh, coming out of the uh, Eastern Division of the National League. Um, we, we really weren't looking much beyond the Braves. We thought it was a pretty good hitting team, Henry Aaron and those guys, uh, Rico Cardi, Joe Torre, uh, pretty scary offense. Uh, and, uh, on, you know, in a, sh- in a, a best uh, three out of five series, uh, pretty scary when you shrink their pitching down that much. We really, we really didn't expect a whole lot there. Um, but, but Hodges, I think, said something to us. Uh, we had won 100 ballgames that summer, Okay. Uh, two years before, in 1967, we lost 100 again. We we showed some signs of improvement in '68. I would think that 500 baseball in 1969 would have would have not been an embarrassment for that team. Would not have been a letdown. But somehow things coalesced. Things came together in a in a way that even surprised us. Uh, you mentioned the Clendenen trade, Cleon Jones. Uh, you know, coming into his own, he had a shot at uh, you know a batting title that mm-hmm. year. Tommy Agee. We had enough offense, and we we played pretty darn good defense behind a pitching staff of Tom Seaver, Jerry Kuzman, uh, Gary Gentry, uh, Don Cardwell, the veteran, Tug McGraw, uh, Ron Taylor out of the bullpen, and others. Uh, We had a lot of buttons for Gil Hodges to push, and he knew how to push them. He kept everybody ready to play. We largely platooned that year at a lot of spots. So everybody was fresh and everybody was ready to play. And it was our moment somehow. And we came and surprised a whole lot of people, including, I would imagine, ourselves.
1: And the Chicago Cubs and the Atlanta Braves. and well, then we of course got ultimately. the Cubs. I
4: mean, the Cubs, yeah. somebody just mentioned that. The Cubs, the 1969 Cubs were the, were the team that spent the longest time in first place without actually winning it. Uh, we caught them, kind of reeled them in, and, you know, we started reeling them in in, uh, in, in August and, and caught them in September and, and uh, passed them and blew by them. And, 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 you know, I know there's a lot of people think the Cubs choked. Cubs didn't choke, you know, in 69. We played 750 baseball like the last five or six weeks of the season. That's, that's, you know, when, when you're out there hitchhiking, you know, and a uh, Ferrari passes you, you know, it's... Uh, you know, it's not because uh, it's not because you're not trying. You know, it, it's mm-hmm. it's like a Budweiser horse in uh, in the Kentucky Derby. You know, we we just got a head of steam, uh, built this wave up and, and and rode it.
1: Well, let's talk about a few things real quick. Uh, the Black Cat incident. I've talked to a bunch of the parties involved from Ron Sano and some others on that team. Do you remember that night oh, pretty vividly? it?
4: It was like central casting. I mean, we played incredibly tight, tense tough-fought games with the Cubs that year. Um, And little things happened to separate all of the games. I mean, it wasn't like we blew them out in any one game. We ended up winning the season series by a goodly margin. But when the games counted, when it mattered to the Cubs, they were tight games, and they were really, really battles all the way through, usually not decided until late. And here we are in the the middle of Shea Stadium, and, and, and in another tight game, Uh, At night, hot, and and Leo DeRocher, you know, who was as superstitious as anybody, managing the Cubs. And and what comes out from under the stands at Shea Stadium but this black cat. Now, this black cat was completely freaked, okay? Um, like like it was central casting. Like somebody said, okay, cue the cat. The cat takes a left turn runs right in front of the visiting dugout and just kind of runs back and forth in front of the visiting dugout before they finally chase it on the stand. He never approaches us. It's like it was our cat. And, you know, everybody's looking at this. I mean, we're enjoying the hell out of this. I mean, this is like, who arranged this, you know? (laughs) And, uh, you know, and and, and with so many things happening to the Cubs, this just, to me, uh... Yeah, you know I don't believe in any of this crap. You know I don't believe in that. But but, but I mean, but sh- short yeah, of it five made ladders, stories, and, and and it became a theme of this whole thing.
1: Well, short of breaking mirrors and walking under ladders that night, the Black Hat certainly was about as good as it gets. And let's yeah. talk about being good. Uh, you huh? have you have half of your 52 RBIs in the last five weeks of the season, and one of those games, by the way, where you collected four RBIs. Uh, this is one of the great answers to one of the great great trivia questions of all time. That night you hit two off Carlton. He strikes out 19. He sets a major league record, which strikeouts. The New York Mets, the laughable, lovable, the lousiest team that baseball had seen in so long. You guys win a game where the other guy strikes out 19. That's not supposed to happen. That might have been maybe, and that's September 15th, I believe, the biggest telltale sign that the tide had turned for the New York Mets.
4: Yeah, we had been in a little bit of a lull, and um, here you face Carlton in St. Louis, and I'm, I'm not, you know, who hit him Hard. I know nope, nobody I knew wore him out. Now I didn't hit particularly well against Steve Collin, a great pitcher, great left-hander. And um, I don't know what happened. I had I had worked with I had worked with Ralph Kiner down in. Uh, they had the one of the first hitting cages in baseball in 1969. You could find it out in left field in 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 uh, Bush Stadium. And I had worked a little bit with Ralph Kiner on a couple of things and kind of fell into something that felt good for me, just just working with him and having him look at me and feed me some balls through this pitching machine. And um, so I was swinging the bat pretty good, but I mean Carlton had the greatest night of his pitching career up to that point. And uh, he, he struck out 19 guys. He had two strikes on me both times when I homered off him. He struck me out twice. So, I mean I was so close to striking out four times it's not funny, but I hit a two-run home run to a race, a one nothing lead by the Cardinals. I hit, a, um, I hit a slider over the left field wall for a two-run home run to a race, a 3-2 lead by the Cardinals, and we win the ball game. And afterwards, Harry Carey interviewed us on radio. There was no television, no, no video of any of this uh, back in 1969. It doesn't exist. But we went in to do this radio show after the game, and Carlton was sitting there, and he looked like a guy who just found out Somebody ran over his dog. You know, I mean, here he has the greatest night of his life. Um, here's me, you know, an ordinary hitter uh, who had the greatest hitting night of my life. And we win. And, and, and the Mets are on this roll. And, and this was just part of some of the strange things that happened to us that year. You know, we, we beat the Pirates a doubleheader and won nothing, won nothing. And the two starting pitchers in both games drove in the only runs
1: which I mean, is there not are
4: strange things yeah. i mean that's to me that's stranger than the black cat
1: well let me ask you this about strange and and i don't really know you know how you feel about this a lot of people in the things that i read i was only six in nineteen sixty nine but every name that you mentioned i know that team like i would know the atlanta braves of two thousand and three it was just something that was ingrained in my head i grew up in a met household i mean there was just something about that team that just got passed down from my dad to me and at six it is my first baseball recollection that end of that season but the thing that i find most telling is you are not necessarily known as a defensive player in the outfield. You make what I claim today, and I claimed it yesterday when we talked originally, uh, I claim it might be the greatest defensive play in postseason history. I mean, uh, you want it's to, a pretty I
4: good backhanded stab that I make off of Brooks Robinson late in Game 4 of the World Series, okay? Um, here's what most people, you know, I mean, conventional wisdom is uh, generally should be suspect, Okay. You need to ask conventional wisdom a few questions before you just swallow it whole. Okay. Um, I made a lot of mistakes as an outfielder. I, I, you know, in in front of a lot of people, and got a pretty well-deserved reputation as a, as a, as a shaky outfielder. Coming up to the big leagues for the first time, that embarrassment caused me to work very hard at my outfielding. Uh, Eddie Yost. Our third base coach uh, must have hit me thousands of balls, line drives, ground balls, line drives left and right, over my head, all the tough ones is what I wanted, and and from that work, and I did it constantly during the season and in spring training, um, I believe I made myself a pretty good outfielder. Now, that's not conventional wisdom, but I know... And you, you know, if you talk to people who I played with back then, they know that I. And the driving force was that Hodges used to put a defensive replacement for me in right field in in the late innings of certain ball games I was in, and I hated it. I hated it. And 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 I, I, I it, the the one promise I had to myself was I was going to stop that, and and eventually I did. I became a good enough outfield that that outfielder that that move up, you know became unnecessary Mm -hmm. and and so I was just like the Mets were a little better than the um, Atlanta Braves thought just as the Mets were a little better than the Baltimore Orioles thought I was a little better outfielder than a lot of people were aware
1: of what about positioning on that play we talked about what it was by the way in case people don't know you guys are up two to one in the series Tom Seaver's on the mound Seaver loses the first game of that series by the way and I'm sure and I helped him lose
4: it I let a ball get over the fence off of Don Buford the first hitter of the ball game I, I completely misplayed it, uh, and it got over the fence behind me, and it should have never happened.
1: What do you, let me so ask I you this. I, I was just going to say uh, Tom Seaver's on the mound in that game four that you guys end up winning when you make this catch in the ninth right. inning. What happens in a World Series situation? You guys are young. Tom Seaver's young. You're young. A lot of young guys on this team. I know you don't necessarily apologize to a pitcher on a play that you don't handle really well. Going into the locker room after you guys are down 0-1 in that series, was there any talk of what we're going to do next, or was it just a "let's get out of here, let's just get ready to play game two tomorrow"?
4: No, I don't think we. Uh, I don't think we felt like um, anybody let anybody down. I, I got a little upset with myself on the bench uh, when that ball got over my head early in game one for a one-run lead by the Orioles. Uh, but I came in, and I was berating myself, believe it or not. And, okay. and Ed Cranepool walked over, and he said, shut the hell up and just go get the next one.
1: And, and that's it's what a seven-game series, right? He said, and shut you guys... <laughs> up
4: and go get the next one. And, and I just shut up. You know, I mean, Eddie was, uh, Eddie, Eddie was on the mark. And uh, it... it was like, look, play the games. Play the games. And Hodges said to us before that World Series, he said, you don't have to be anything but what you've been. All right, you don't have to play ball above what you've played, just play, just do what you've been doing.
1: Yeah, you don't fluke your way into 100 wins. I think no, that's also on the still. Absolutely not. Too. And,
4: and, um, I mean, you know, we were still a, a, a great pitching team, uh, and, and, and a pretty doggone good defensive team, and we proved it. We, we outplayed the Orioles. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they were happy to see us coming out of the National League, but just don't, don't forget this the National League in 1969 and in the years around 1969, was head and shoulders above the American League. So the test of coming out of the National League, in my humble opinion, was better than the test of coming out of the American League. And I think the fact that we were a little bit of a surprise, a little bit of an unknown quantity, um, I think I, I think gave us some advantage there, uh, having won the National League in what I think is... Uh, much tougher baseball back then in, you know, late 60s, early 70s. All
1: right, Ron, let's do this. Let's finish up with a couple of quick items. Are you on the field, by the way? I know Cleon Jones records the last out. It is kind of ironic. There's irony all over this. Paul Blair is now yeah, a the field. Yeah, I'm in right field. The, you're yeah. in right field. Uh, I've read a bunch of accounts. What was your route to get off the field? Did you go to the bullpen? Oh, and I, grabbed my, get...
4: I grabbed my hat off my head and I ran, I ran straight to the dugout and, and anybody got in front of me got pretty good shoved.
1: So and you I, I did make it to the out dugout out. conventionally. Uh, the
4: people's eyes were big as saucers. And, yeah. you know, I mean, uh, you just wanted to get out of there. It was pandemonium. You know, I mean, you really wanted to get off that field, you know, in a big way.
1: Let's talk about a couple of things that follow real quickly. Uh, you're part of the Ed Sullivan Show, correct?
4: Uh, everybody was.
1: Yeah, I mean, how amazing is that? I know winning the World Series, but there are things that come about. There's the parade. There's the Ed Sullivan Show. There's the ceremony. Pearl Bailey is now, you know, kind of... She was, she was a fan. I know.
4: We saw Pearl. Uh, she didn't just show up. She was a big Met fan. You know who else was a Met fan?
1: Can I guess? Louis Sammy Armstrong. Da- Louis Armstrong. How about Sammy Davis Jr.? Didn't he also kind of Sammy make that a, as well? Uh, well,
4: I met Sammy Davis through Tommy Davis. Um, so, I, I, you know, he he uh, he knew about the Mets probably from from Tommy Davis, who was, a, who was a good friend of his from his Dodger days in Los Angeles.
1: What about the sign man, the guy who had all the signs?
4: Erhard, uh, uh no, uh, Eberhart is still alive. He was awesome. Um, the the guy was. I always looked at his signs because I always thought they were so brilliant. The really? guy was amazing.
1: Yeah, he was.
4: Um, he had. He always. He always immediately interpreted the tone. I mean, you know, here was a guy, and, you know, these were manual signs. Now, today, everything is electronic. you got electronic cheerleading and all this other bogus crap. Here's a guy who had a whole big satchel full of signs. And and when a play would happen, everybody would look at him. What, what, how should we respond to this? And up would come, you know, some sign that was right on the money. He was incredible.
1: All right, let me ask you. Ten words or less, was it more incredible winning a World Series or, be, seriously, being on the Ed Sullivan Show, when you think about it, as a young man, you probably knew more about no, the Ed Sullivan more Show. No, was incredible to
4: me, after 1969, I went to Vietnam with the USO. And these guys in Vietnam, uh, in a very unpopular war, um, had stayed up to like 3, 4 o'clock in the morning uh, to listen to Armed Forces Radio and hear us win a World Series. And when you would show up in some little out-of-the-way boondocks, you know, nowhere place with young American soldiers out there and, and, they would, and they would know what happened in the World Series and could not believe that this guy from a, a, a World Series championship team had had shown up there to say hi. That was incredible. Ed Sullivan was, was nice. Okay, the, the parade down Broadway was wonderful. But uh, the thing that I did that, that gave me the biggest thrill was, was being able to, you know, because of the weight of this world championship team that I was lucky enough to be on, um, you can make an impression on young American soldiers who were stuck with some pretty
1: mm-hmm.
4: lousy duty, uh, not completely unlike Iraq.
1: Well, Ron, listen, that might be a hell of a place to end this. I'm not really sure what you have left from that game. I've seen the photo. Uh, I think every baseball fan knows the play. You've seen the video. I do contend it might be the greatest play in postseason baseball history. I
4: don't know if it is or not. I mean, it's it's ironic now that the Mets are there in in, in, uh, Atlanta playing mm -hmm. a series that we wish meant something to somebody um, because I really hate the Braves, okay? Mm -hmm. I really hate the Braves. And the reason I hate the Braves is every time, you know, when you're in the National League East division and you look (laughs) up, instead of blue sky... You see the Braves. <laughs> well, once, <laughs> once, a man, once. <laughs> and I met one, you know I I respect them. I'm kidding you, but I well, mean the it, Braves listen, hey. have been there, and uh, the Braves have uh, have managed to evolve through uh, different faces, different pitchers, different players, and they've stayed at the top of that division, and they deserve it.
1: All right, Ron. Let's let's finish up officially with this. You talked about some of the guys. Um, that team and how it was constructed and maybe the moon and the stars and playing a hundred win baseball it's again that's not flukish it's not lucky i think the most amazing thing is when you think about the roster on that team let's just real quick do this again i, I was six years old at the time but right. uh... jc martin you talk about backup uh, catcher to grody bobby file bobby
4: file was a fill-in guy he didn't play in the world series but he really helped us during the season uh, just, just a guy that could do a couple of things right. You know, he was a backup player.
1: Kenny Boswell, Wayne Garrett.
4: Those two guys were, uh, you know, Garrett platoon with Ed Charles at third, a lefty-righty platoon at third. Boswell platoon with Al Weiss at second, lefty-righty platoon, lefty-righty at Crane Pool and uh, Don Clendenin at first base. Art Shamsky, another in right field.
1: That's right. I mean, it well, really is we incredible. We drove in
4: now. You know, we we pretty much platoon, but we drove in a few runs in uh, in, in right field. Chamsky and I. I think it was close to a hundred.
1: Well, thirty-four platooning. years later, the names roll off the tongue. If anybody's associated out there right now, anybody listening to Met fan, I mean, the names like that. It just well, means think something. think
4: about this too. 1969. What happened that year? Yeah, we you're put right. A man on the moon. We had Woodstock. We had the war raging in Vietnam. We had the anti-war protests and the Love Children and this whole Make Love Not War thing going on. You had big business, good business times, a lot of jobs. It was like a time when anything could happen. Anything could happen. And how and, about this, one? And out of that, uh, the the Jets had upset the uh, the Baltimore Colts, which you know didn't thrill me as a kid from Baltimore. I was a John Unitas fan. You know, I thought if you get Unitas in that Super Bowl three, the Jets, you know, soon enough, the Jets don't win it. In my book, I'll, Red, I'll believe that forever.
1: Red Holtzman and the New York Knicks. I mean, you talk about New York having a year of years. It's the Knicks. It's the and Jets. They beat it's Baltimore the New York Mets.
4: All three times. I mean, that actually, the, the NBA playoffs was after uh, it was in 1970, but it was mm-hmm. the season that started yep. in '69. But they three New York teams beat three Baltimore major sports teams. Now, how do you figure that?
1: Well, it's just as you said, the year where anything could and did happen. Ron, listen, greatly appreciate your time. I know you've been down in New Orleans for a while. Uh, I know great a lot of me, Mets fans. Man. Uh, and when you while. come
4: here, <laughs> give me a shout.
1: I will do that, Ron. Listen, I appreciate your time tonight. Have yourself a great night.
4: Chris, take care, man. Enjoyed it. Here they are, the champion Mets singing You've Gotta Have part. So let's have a fine, wonderful feeling
2: I'm my 18
0: years in this game. Rob, believe me, it's the most happiest moment of my life. There's a drive in the deep left.
2: showing it to Lou Demiro
0: who awards first base, another shoe polish play Here is at 2-1 win. behind victory for the Mets today. They were trailing 3-0. The celebration of the new world champions of baseball, the New York Mets, the final score. New York, five runs, seven hits, and no errors. Baltimore, three runs, five hits, and two errors.